There, my name is Matt Erdman. I am uh, a member here at Woodridge and a seminary student as well. So I am I'm thankful to the elders of this church for the opportunity to preach because it, it truly is a wonderful blessing for us to be gathered together as a, a local church, a body of brothers and sisters committed to the public praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider that very idea this morning, the idea of the local church gathered together for the public praise of Jesus, our psalm for consideration is Psalm 111. Now, surely what I'm about to say is a bit too obvious, but Psalm 111 is a song. It is a, a poetic song written to capture a distinct quality of the lives that we live as the people of God. And over the course of the last three summers, we've seen psalms, we've seen songs like this that, that span the breadth of that entire spectrum that we experience as believers. There is a psalm for every season of life that we find ourselves in as God's people, just as there is a song for every season of our everyday lives. It's probably not too difficult to call to mind a few of your favorites. We have our favorite sad songs. We have our favorite happy songs. There are honestly even some songs of frustration that resonate with us from time to time. And, and as we have taken to the Psalms over the course of the last three summers, we have seen songs and Psalms that fit into each one of those categories. We've heard preaching on, on songs of, of deep lament and sadness, Psalms of great praise unto God. And, and we have heard preaching on, on psalms of frustration and, and angst as well. And then we've also seen psalms like Psalm 111. Once upon a time, I, uh, I fancied myself a runner. That was before seminary. Uh, I used to find great joy in running, ran about 20 miles a week. It was uh, particularly enjoyable when I took the time to construct a playlist of really good, solid, up-tempo songs. And if you've ever made a playlist like that, whether for running or for weightlifting, any kind of exercise, uh, you, you kind of know what I'm talking about. When you're doing that, not just any song will do. It needs to be a particular type of song, a song that keeps up with the intensity of the workout that you're about to put down. It's got to start high, rise, and keep rising to the occasion. That's what you pick for your power and performance playlist, and that's the type of song that we get this morning with Psalm 111. It starts high, it rises higher, and it never slows to stop and smell the roses. Psalm 111 means business, but not the, the business of record-setting speed or a max weight bench rep. Psalm 111 is about the business of worship. It is about God's calling on his church to make disciples that treasure Jesus to such an extent that every moment of their, their lives overflows with worship and praise. Psalm 111 is an ever-rising exhortation to give the God of our salvation his proper due. That's why I am excited to lead you in the reading of Psalm 111 this morning, and that's why I would ask you as well to turn and find that passage in your Bibles and to stand with me as you are able for the reading of God's word as well. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. 
I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is the inerrant, infallible word of God for his people. May it be received among us as such. You may be seated and we will go before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the God of new morning mercies, Father. We are tasting fresh breaths of air. We have sipped refreshing cups of, of water and coffee. And, and we've tasted the goodness of your inspired word already this morning. Every last blessing is a gift from your gracious hands. We stand in awe not only at the daily mercies that, that you continue to show to imperfect creatures, but we marvel at the act of grace that you have accomplished in the sending of your son Jesus hanging in our place on Calvary's cross. May we, along with every other Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church this morning, bring honor and glory to your name through the public praise of Christ and the preaching of his word. We pray that your spirit would work mightily among us to jumpstart our hearts. Where there is apathy, Lord, smash it to pieces. Where we have been content to settle for less of you, revive our hearts and lift them out of the miry bog. Though you have proved yourself over and over and over, prove yourself again this morning, Lord. Show the power of your unconquerable grace in drawing sinners to yourself and sustaining your saints by the power of your word. Leave no hearer unchanged this morning. Leave not the preacher unchanged this morning. Father, as we trust you to do mighty things among us spiritually, we bring our physical needs before you as well. There are members of this body who faithfully wait upon you as they battle illness and weakness. As your will accords, we pray that you would send strength to the weak and swift healing to all who are not physically whole. We pray for those who are financially distressed in times of great strain and uncertainty. Be the healer of your people, Lord. Be the provision of your people. We pray as students start to prepare semesters under strange circumstances, we pray for families attempting to balance work and school and recreation. We pray that you would bless marriages, Father, with a bountiful measure of grace and humility and love. 
And we pray that you would grant godly spouses to our singles and continue to guard their hearts with special care. We love you, Lord. Bless our time together to the glory of your name. And we do pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, uh, Brother John Fannerstill preached a real gift-to-the-soul type sermon on Psalm 42. Uh, if you recall, in that sermon, he mentioned that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 actually share some similar themes and similar language. At the very least, Psalms 42 and 43 are a tight-knit pair, and it's actually quite likely that they were originally written as one singular psalm. In fact, the last verse of each of those psalms is identical. Psalm 42.11 and 43.5 both read, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I am grateful that, that Brother John brought that to our attention. I, I, I love stuff like that because... It helps us read our Bibles better. It breaks us out of the habit of thinking so exclusively about the passage that we're studying while perhaps overlooking some of the the God-breathed words that surround it. We find something similar as we turn our attention to Psalm 111. The psalm is led by a call to praise the Lord, and everything that follows after is written in the form of an acrostic poem. If, if you feel like that tends to be mentioned uh, a lot from the pulpit, you are not mistaken. Um, acrostics is a, uh, is a somewhat common construction in, in the poetry of the Psalms, and we have it again here with Psalm 111. Each line after that initial outburst of praise succeeds with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, as it was written in that language. But Psalm 111 is not the only nearby psalm we see with that construction. Psalm 112 follows the exact same pattern, pattern, praise the Lord, Hebrew acrostic. And you can even go further and see that Psalm 113 gets in on the action. Psalm 113 is not an acrostic, but it carries on that opening exhortation, praise the Lord. This morning, we are going to focus specifically on Psalm 111, but I want to put that before you so that as you dig into the psalm with your community group, as you circle back to Psalm 111 in your personal Bible study, that that you're aware of what these pages are getting at. Starting with Psalm 111, there is something cohesive happening. There is something wonderfully right and good about the people of God leading God-centered lives of worship and praise. There's there's something very good about remembering God's covenant faithfulness to his people in the assembly of his saints. Psalm 111, extolling his provision for those who love him. Psalm 112, and reflecting on it all in awe of our God who is unmatched in glory. There is no one like him, Psalm 113. Yet it does all start with Psalm 111, and that's where I ask you to pick back up with me now. Just like they teach it in school, Psalm 111 starts with somewhat of a thesis statement an organizing idea, and that's helpful for us. The first two verses read, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Here we see that 
the psalm is interested in wholehearted gratitude and adoration unto God. It's, it's interested in the great and delightful works of God, and it's interested in those things in the context of the congregation, the company of the upright. To put that in terms that, that we're a little more familiar with on this side of the cross, this psalm is interested in, ha- interested in how those things play themselves out in the local church. So, since that is what the psalm is interested in, that's what we are going to be interested in as we work our way through it this morning. And just to give you a roadmap on that, we'll be looking at, at, at two main things, really. We're going to consider what the local church does and then we are going to take a look at what and at why it does those things. So verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. We talked about the important context clue the psalmist gives us, and here it is again. We are looking at something that is accomplished in the company of the upright accomplished in the congregation. I want to read it to you in a slightly different way because I think it makes it a little clearer. Verse 1, Praise the Lord. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I think reading it that way gives our ears a better idea of what the psalmist is up to. The psalmist is attempting to communicate that there is something about what happens in the congregation that multiplies the praise of his heart, that brings it to its fullest expression. That something is what he goes on to define over the course of the psalm's remaining verses, and it's, it's also the answer to one of the, the main questions that we're asking this morning. What does the local church do? Keep that in mind as we continue reading, and, and note as well that Once we leave verse 1, we have left behind all of the me, my, and I language. As God's inspired word is teaching us about the glory of his gathered assemblies, the focus is unmistakable. No more me's, my's, and I's. This is about God, and this is about the works that he has done to save his people. Verse 2 and following. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. What does the local church do? The local church feasts upon the works of God and the glorious character out of which they are accomplished. By nature, our God The triune God of the Bible is infinitely wonderful, magnificent, and mighty. As such, in accordance with who he is, when he acts, he does so in wonderful, magnificent, and mighty ways. At one time, there was nothing but him, nothing but the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit, one God existing in perfect love, in harmony, and then he decided to speak. He spoke with unparalleled might and power to create every last thing, seen and unseen. Earth, moon, stars, the sun. The sun fueled by nuclear fusion, because that was his idea. Because nuclei were his idea. 
because he is the God of wonder and the God of every wonder works in wonderful ways. It's who he is and it's what he does. The works of God are inherently marvelous because he is inherently marvelous, yet for as much as we can look at creation and marvel at God's work within, Scripture tells us that's exactly how we are to respond to creation. We are to see it and our minds are to be taken up to consider the creator of it all. As much as we can do that, we still were not there. In fact, there are countless works of God's wonder and might that are all worthy of honor and praise and glory that none of us were there to witness. He has been doing those marvelous deeds since the very beginning, but we have not been there since the very beginning. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave the local church? It leaves us in the best possible place. It leaves us at the grace and mercy of that same great God. What does the text say, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. In grace, as a gift to his people who were not present to witness the splendor of his powerful works, the Lord takes action. He caused his wondrous works to be remembered. He preserved a record of how he has entered history and flexed to the glory of his name. We have not been there to witness it all, but we have a God who in mercy and grace has given us an inerrant revelation of who he is and what he has done. He has given us the scriptures. And as we are graced, With the pure word of God, what does the local church do? Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. What goes on in the local church that would lead someone to say, that's where I will give thanks to God with my whole heart? What goes on is that the local church is the company of the upright. It is an assembly of those who yearn as we all are this morning, to get a little sweaty with the scriptures. A congregation that recognizes that these are the words of God about himself and the deeds that he's done, and they are worthy of being worked over for every last nugget of joy. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Our wholehearted joy is found in Christ alone, and the flame of that delight is most fully fanned when the people of God gather together to feast on his glorious deeds. Together, to feast on the greatness of our God in fullness of heart. If we were to think about this in 2020 terms, I, I think the psalmist might say something along the lines of blogs, yes, podcasts, yes, all of the, all of the technology that has allowed the word to enter your homes more easily, yes. But don't for a second confuse those appetizers for the feast that God is preparing at your local church where you can gather with his people and consider his great works together. I am not saying that you you can't have a delicious and satisfying meal by your lonesome. You certainly can. As someone who lives alone, I do it often. But, But no one using the term honestly 
or properly would ever confuse my evening meal for one with a feast. Verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Up until this point, we've talked about the works of God in general terms because that's what the first four verses of Psalm 111 do. From verse 5 on, however, we are going to focus on a very specific category of God's works, and that is the category of his covenant faithfulness the way he has worked in history to secure the salvation of his people. We, we did get a little glimpse of that in verse 5, so let's go back there, pick up, and read through verse 9. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Of course, the psalmist is writing from the perspective of God's Old Testament people. So it's not surprising to see him recount the events associated with Israel's salvation history. Commentators suggest that the food in verse 5 is a reference to the provision of manna God graciously gave his people in the desert as he freed them from the shackles of Egypt. Scripture calls that event the Exodus, and we see more of it in verse 9. When God's people were enslaved and need of redemption. The Lord sent it, and he sent it mightily. He was not blind to his people's distress, nor was he ignorant of the promises that he made to Abraham. Our God is a God who commands his covenant. Nothing happens outside of his will. Nothing happens outside of his timing. And at the proper time, he demonstrated his supremacy over the powers of Pharaoh and Egypt. He kept his promise to Abraham by giving his people a land that flowed with milk and honey. And he did that by what's described in verse 6. The Lord took a nation of slaves under his wing and used them to conquer any who stood in the way of his people's rest. The land that once belonged to the nations was now the inheritance of of Israel, and even more, verses 7 and 8, God blessed his people with his just and righteous precepts, given them to honor him by being performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Again, what is the local church to do? One thing I don't want us to miss is the continuity between verses 4 and 5. Right after declaring that God is gracious to cause his works to be remembered, the psalmist starts remembering them. Building off verse 2, studying the great works of God is just the beginning. For all who are after wholehearted devotion to the Lord, it starts with the study of his holy word as we're gathered together, but it does not end there. The glories uncovered must be proclaimed. They are to be recounted. They are to jump from script to sound as the people of God are captured by the majesty of their Savior. New Testament, brothers and sisters, what is the local church to do? 
We are to do those very things in the context of our own salvation. The local church is to gather together and feast upon our God as revealed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Up to this point, I know things have sounded relatively awesome because it is incredibly awesome to be counted among the people of God, but not a single one of us is born into that camp. By nature, every one of us is born in sin and dead to anything that would ever be acceptable to God. Completely dead to the righteousness of God. Objects of his righteous wrath. But the Lord commands his covenant forever. He is faithful to his plan to save. And when the time had fully come, there was a baby born in Bethlehem who was not dead, but rather alive to the righteousness of God. His name was Jesus, and he was alive to the righteousness of God because he was the righteousness of God. He was God himself, the eternal son, the second person of the one, only, true, triune God. Divine righteousness wrapped in human flesh. The only hope for sinners like you and me. Perhaps we don't talk about it enough, but there is no gospel without these doctrines. The doctrine of Christ's full deity and the doctrine of his full humanity. By necessity, our Redeemer had to be human to stand in our place. To be our substitute, he had to be made like us in every way except without sin. That righteous standard of God's is loud and clear throughout the pages of Scripture, Old and New Testament alike. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There could be no such thing as a Savior who only gets real close to the Father's perfection. By necessity, we need a divine Redeemer to mirror the righteousness of God the Father. When the apostles said of Jesus, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, I believe these doctrines are what they had in mind. There never was, nor will there ever be another like Jesus. He is the God-man. He is perfect in righteousness, the one of whom it says in Hebrews, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the Father's nature. That is the Jesus who took on flesh and put himself forward as what Scripture calls a propitiation, a substitution, a sacrifice that satisfies the righteous wrath of God. That's what's happening when we read about Jesus on the cross. Though he lived every moment of his life mirroring the righteousness of God the Father, he was treated like the vilest offender so that he might drink the cup of wrath for all who would be united to him by faith. No, none of us are born naturally into the camp of God's people, but by grace, through faith, you can indeed be born again to the living hope. The Lord commands his covenant forever. And it is his good pleasure through the preaching of his word to take hearts of ruined sinners and raise them to regenerate life. What is the local church to do? Proclaim that message from the mountaintops. Dear ruined sinners, the gracious God who does marvelous works has sent his son to bear your wrath and open the gates of paradise. Repent and believe in Jesus. 
Lay down your resume and take up his, for it is the only issue approved by the Father. His is the only name given by which we must be saved. That's what the local church does. Gathered together to study God's word, the record of his covenant faithfulness. We recount and proclaim his marvelous mercies. We say, along with the psalmist, holy and awesome is his name. I have, I've been really blessed to worship like that with y'all this morning. Shout to the God of triumph. Let every tongue proclaim his praise. Boast in the resurrection in Jesus Christ who rules and reigns. Our God is greatly to be praised. And yet it, it, it isn't lost on me that I am preaching this sermon while the world continues to deal with COVID and, and all of the challenges it represents. I've used the term gather on several occasions already, and, and I use it because I am confident that that's what's behind terms like congregation and company of the upright as they appear in the text. Without question, though, we are living through times where truly gathering is less common than we'd like it to be, less, less common than we all enjoyed a matter of months ago. And, and even beyond the fear of, of spread and, and sickness, there's the possibility of additional government orders. Those are all unpredictable. Some states have taken more drastic measures in, in, in that regard. So I, I, I get it. I get that preaching a sermon on the glories of the gathered church when COVID concerns are high comes across as a, a, a little bit unusual at best. And please believe, I am in no way offering this as an indictment of, of any choice that anyone has made for themselves or for their family on how to proceed through this. What I am saying, though, is that Psalm 111 says something significant about what the local church does and why it does it. We have walked through how the local church joins together to feast on God's word, overflowing in worship as we remember his mighty deeds. That is a very significant what, but the why is just as important. Though uh, I haven't assigned anything specific yet to the, to the why category, uh, we did touch on one aspect of it when we were talking about the wholehearted devotion of God's people. There is a legitimate fullness factor to regular worship in the local church. That fullness factor is a product of the fact that the local church is the company of the upright who can... It consists of those who delight in the Lord. And delight, delight is wonderfully contagious. I'm so sorry, there are no good synonyms for that word. But it's true, delight is contagious. And if you've ever watched a comedian or a baseball game on TV, at home, by yourself, I think you understand what I mean. You can love comedy, you can love baseball, but there's something different about being with those who are like-minded. It makes all the difference. There is a fullness factor to being with those who share your deepest delights. 
you leave the theater, you leave the ballpark fuller than you could have ever imagined. And isn't that what we're after when it comes to the Lord? From the very moment we leave the sanctuary or we leave this field, the world is on mission to take what has filled our hearts with delight and divert our attention away from Jesus. It is ruthless. And our great offensive is still and always been the gospel ministry of the local church. Why does the local church do what it does? Because you are a vulnerable follower of Jesus without it. That fullness factor is one of the reasons the local church, what it does, what it does. Another is that the nature of God's work compels it. I'd like you to think about apologies for a moment. Old school apologies, schoolyard uh, apologies. I think there's a pretty straightforward common sense rule when it comes to those, those classic apologies. The rule is, if you wronged someone in a, a personal, private way, then a personal, private apology is appropriate. If, however, you wrong someone in a public way, a public apology, apology is appropriate. The rule assumes an appropriate parallel between the nature of an action and the nature of its response. When it comes to the works of the Lord our God, his actions are gloriously public. The birth of Jesus became a public event as angels appeared in the skies over Bethlehem. The death of Christ was a public execution accompanied by signs and wonders that left pagan guards convinced that the crucified Jesus was the Son of God. The resurrection was such a public event that the chief priests in Jerusalem conspired to spread misinformation about the disciples stealing Jesus' body so that they could squash the story of a dead and buried man who had come back to life and appeared to many. These are the very public events that secured our salvation, and in them we see God flexing his might publicly. So why do we, as the people who have been recipients of such a sweet salvation, do what we do? Why is it that the local church is committed to the public praise of Jesus Christ because the nature of Christ's public work for the salvation of his people compels it? As we also sang, no one can rival his glory and fame, we lift high the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this church is so blessed. And there are some wonderfully tangible ways that we've been able to see that recently. I reflect on the fact that we are a Baptist church and that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together soon. Doing that today. And in case it wasn't clear as I was speaking earlier, we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as revealed in Scripture alone. And as a local church committed to the public praise of Jesus, one of the most heart-filling ways that we do that is through the celebration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
This summer, I've sat with you. We've seen young people get in the water and publicly proclaim what only God by his grace could accomplish in their lives. Teenagers. Teenagers saying, God cut me to the core by exposing my sin, but it made the grace of Jesus all the sweeter. We see it. We hear it. And the delight is contagious. We see it. We feel it. We we taste it when it comes to the supper. Individually, it is a little piece of bread in a small cup, but together as a company of the upright, as a congregation, we are feasting to the fullness of heart by proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. Why? Because that's what the local church does. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. Jesus is the unique redeemer. He is the perfect God-man. He is the name, the only name by which we must be saved. His is the only resume acceptable before you. And we praise you for the grace that you have shown these brothers and sisters, that you have brought them to a knowledge of their sin and the fact that their resume is worthless before you. And they may only come before you pleading the merits of Jesus Christ. As we continue to worship you, as we gather together to proclaim your death until you come Use this time to fill our hearts so that we might be fortified against the slings and the arrows of a world that attempts to steal our delight as our hearts are captured together to worship you for all that you have done. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.